You're listening to Pastor Ryan Couch at Calvary Chapel of Crook County as he teaches through the book of Luke. If you have your Bibles ready, let's join Pastor Ryan now. Continuing our series in the Gospel of Luke, if you're new here, we've been going through the Gospel of Luke, and over the last couple chapters, chapters 9 and 10, uh, we're seeing that God is on a mission, and the Bible is the record of God's mission, that, that our God is a a missionary God, that He is engaged actively in mission. And that the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation speaks of this mission that God is on. And what is this mission? Ultimately, it's about restoration. The entire Bible is about restoration through redemption. That is, that man was made in God's image. Genesis 1.26 tells us that. That we were made in God's image. That is that we were made with the capability to relate with God. To worship God. And to know God. That was how we were created. That's why when God made man, he looked at everything and he said, it is good. But then our sin, not just Adam's sin, but our sin, broke that communion. It broke that relationship that we had with God. It made it impossible for us to relate to God. It made us incapable of truly worshiping God and knowing God. And so the mission is for God to restore that ultimate plan whereby we had relationship with Him. We were made in His image and we could relate with God, but that was broken by our sin. And so God has now been on a mission to restore that. And if you haven't allowed Him to restore you, that's why your life doesn't make sense. That's why there's this disconnect and why you don't understand where you came from or why you're here or where you're going. Nothing makes sense. And everything is just screwed up. And it's because you're not in right relationship with God who is your creator who created you with the opportunity to know Him and to relate with Him, and to be in communion with Him, to know Him. And when you don't, nothing makes sense. It's like the puzzle that's missing one piece. And it's like, where is this piece? Nothing else really fits together without this piece. And there's this vacuum inside of you, and God wants to fulfill you. He wants to restore you. That's the mission that He's been on. And the Gospel of Luke, you guys, it reveals the culmination of God's mission. Because as I said, the Bible is all about God's mission. From Genesis to Revelation. It's not this disjointed book that kind of got thrown together that's got a bunch of different religious thoughts in it. It is one seamless story. The plan of God all pointing to its culmination, its climax, the end, which is Jesus. And that's why wherever we're at in the Bible, we ought to be talking about Jesus. That's why at the end of this book, in Luke chapter 24, after Jesus was resurrected from the dead, he met up with a couple of disciples who were totally bummed about their friend, their rabbi, Jesus, being crucified. And Jesus is talking with them, and they don't know who he is. And it says Jesus took them from Genesis to Malachi, the law and the prophets, showing them himself in all of the scripture. Because the entirety of the Bible, whether it's Luke or Leviticus, 
is all about Jesus. And man, if we're not getting to Jesus, we're missing the point. We're absolutely missing the point. The Gospel of Luke reveals the culmination of God's mission. Jesus who came to seek and to save that which is lost. Jesus who came to restore us by redeeming us, paying the debt, taking the wrath of God upon Himself because there was judgment for our sin. In Luke 19.10 is the theme of the Gospel of Luke. It's the mission of God. Everything in the Bible is pointing to that mission. And now, you guys, God has entrusted us with His mission. Just as the Father sent Jesus, so Jesus is sending you to continue His mission. John 20, verse 21, Jesus said that. Just as I have been sent by the Father, so I am sending you. You've been sent on mission with God. And this morning, in Luke 10, verses 1 to 20, I want us to notice 11 truths about our mission. Don't worry, we're just going to briefly look at each of these 11 things. Luke 10, verses 1 to 20. After these things, what things? Well, back in chapter 9, Jesus sent out the 12 on mission. And so now they're back, and Jesus has transfigured Himself. Jesus has predicted His death. Jesus has healed. He's continued to minister. And after all of these things that we see in chapter 9, the Lord appointed 70 others. Some translations say 72. Really doesn't change anything. He sent out 70 others also. And sent them two by two before His face into every city and place where He Himself was about to go. Then He said to them, The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into His harvest. Go your way. Behold, I send you out as lambs among wolves. Carry neither money bag, knapsack, nor sandals, and greet no one along the road. But whatever house you enter, first say, Peace to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on it. If not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking such things as they give. For the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat such things as they set before you. And heal the sick there. And say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go out into its streets and say, The very dust of your city which clings to us, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near you. But I say to you that it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than it is for that city. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. He who hears you, hears me. He who rejects you, rejects me. And he who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. Then the seventy returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Nevertheless, 
Do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. And so 11 truths about our mission. The first thing I want us to notice is found in verse 1. And that is that mission, the mission that we're on, the mission that God has sent us on, is to be done in community. Look at verse 1. It says, Jesus sent them out two by two. He didn't send out lone rangers. He didn't send out uh, prideful, autonomous people that say, I don't need anybody else. I can do this on my own. He sent out people in community, in groups, in teams, because that's how mission happens. And that really is how God intended it to be when, when you look at the Trinity and you look at the the unity that it exists amongst the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's a picture for us of the unity that God wants to see happening in the church. And if you look at John 17, you see God's heart for unity. And yet the church is so dysfunctional, is so ununified, is is so autonomous and separate and divided because, well... We believe in the pre-tribulational rapture and, and, and you believe in post-tribulationism. Or we, we believe that it's okay to raise your hands in worship and you don't. We believe in sprinkling. You believe in dunking. And, and so we're just going to be divided and separate. You use the NIV. We believe in the King James. We're not going to associate with you. Even though we all believe in Jesus and in the gospel and in the same truths, the major tenets, And we're all on the same mission. We're divided. And even in the church, we're divided. And Jesus says there ought to be community. That There ought to be partnership. And today there's a a big push, especially in the Northwest, for Christians to say, I don't need the church. I don't need to go to church. In fact, church is at Starbucks when I get together with my buddy and we share a latte. Hey, I'm the first one to say that church is wherever you're at. Go be the church. But... The Bible clearly defines what a church is in terms of the local church. And it involves some structure and a definite format of leadership. And if you don't have that, then you don't have a church. We are the church wherever we go, but the local church is defined for us. And you need leaders. And so some of the recent books like Pagan Christianity, uh, written by Frank Viola, who I'm sure is well-intentioned, but I think he's sincerely wrong. In, in his history and his facts, where he says the church is rooted in paganism and everything about the church is opposed to God. It, it's also uh, endorsed, and in, in much of the research for that book was done by George Barna, who's made his living off of the church for decades. And so now it's very convenient for him to turn his back on the church, which I think is utterly reprehensible. Today, we have a moving away from the church and we don't need the church anymore because we're filled with pride. That's where it comes from. I don't need the church because it's all about me. I can do this on my own. I don't need community. And Jesus shows us that you do need that. He sent them out two by two and then they come back as a group, we're going to see. We see that Jesus told the early followers of him to get together and to wait for the Holy Spirit. He didn't say, hey, everybody go to your own homes. When I show up, you'll know. He said, gather together in community. Then 3,000 people get saved all in the 
same day, all there in Jerusalem. They've got no churches to go back to. So Peter says, look, we've got a mega church. He gathers them all together. He disciples them. He pours Jesus into them. And then they get sent out. But it's about the church. Paul spent his entire life traveling, planting churches, and then writing to churches. We need that. The mission is to be done in community. And we need to be engaged in church. Church shouldn't define us. It shouldn't be my entire life. But we need to be engaged in church and involved and part of the body. Every part doing its share, Ephesians 4 talks about. A second truth about our mission is that the mission is a great need. Look at verse 2, the beginning. Jesus said to them, the harvest truly is great. The mission that you're sent on, the mission that you and I have been sent on as Christians, the mission of God, the mission that culminated in Jesus Christ and now has been given to you to go out and to proclaim Jesus, to preach Jesus. You are a preacher, not just me. I'm not the only small town preacher. I may have a blog called that, but I'm not the only preacher. You are a preacher. You preach with your life. You preach with the way you handle difficulty. You preach with how you raise your kids. You preach with your marriage. And you preach with your mouth. And ought to point people to Jesus. And if you're not doing that, then you're off your mission. But the mission, you guys, is great. It's huge. The harvest, Jesus says. And that type of language, that metaphor, that agricultural illustration is one that Jesus uses often to speak of salvation. Remember, we looked at it not long ago as Jesus was talking about the sower sowing the seed. Often in the scriptures, salvation is referred to in an agrarian fashion so they could wrap their mind around it. And once again, he talks about our mission being a harvest. It's like going out and and cutting down a field of hay. The harvest is great. It's huge. There's no question that the harvest is great. You look out and you go, wow, there is a lot of needs. There are a lot of people who are separated from God. There's a lot of people who do not have a relationship with Him. That yes, they're made in His image, but they're separate from Him. They're incapable of knowing Him. There's a huge need. Crook County has 25,000 people in it, at least it used to, before all the jobs went away. Maybe there's less than that now. But there's somewhere around 25,000 people in Crook County. Somewhere around 2,000 of those people are actively involved in churches. Now, I'm not saying that if you're not in a church, you're not a Christian. But I think, suffice it to say, we know there's a huge need. There's well over 20,000 people in our county who don't know Jesus Christ who do not have a relationship with their creator, who do not know that they were made in his image. And in order to have purpose and fulfillment and satisfaction in this life, they they need to know God. We have a great mission field right here. The mission is great. And often when we think about missions in regard to the church, we think about a ministry in the church. We think about a department of the church. We think about a missions guy who takes care of the missions. And he plans short-term groups to go and to drop down into a country to spend 10 days there and to come back. Or we think of it as a wall in the foyer where there's a whole bunch of pictures of people we don't know that come like once a year and do a slideshow that bore you to tears because they aren't great speakers. That's why they're missionaries. At least that's what I was told growing up. 
There's nothing about it that resonates with you at all. And and then they give you the the pitch to the young people. You ought to be a missionary. And you're thinking, if you're a missionary, I don't want to be one. Right? That's our idea of missions. And you know what? That's totally skewed. Sending $20 a month to 20 different missionaries is not missions. It's not a department in the church. It is the church. It's the purpose of the church. It's your mission. It's not just in Africa. You know what? They ought to be doing their mission in Africa. Taking the gospel to their context. That's their mission. But you have a mission right here. Now, I'm, you know I have nothing against foreign global missions. And we support it and we do a lot of things with that. But that ought not define our missions We are missionaries right here. You don't need to go anywhere. You have a huge harvest right here in our community. The the need is great. Well, in light of the great need, the problem is the mission lacks missionaries. That's the third truth about our mission. The mission lacks missionaries. The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. The laborers are few. How sad is that? There's a huge need, but there's very few people that are willing to go meet the need because of fear, because of laziness, because they're distracted, because they don't know what the mission is. They don't know what the message is. They can't clearly articulate the gospel because the church has completely divorced itself from the gospel and become something other than a gospel preaching entity. And so, of course, we're not on mission. We don't even know what we're doing. We're nothing more than the Rotary Club or the Elks Lodge. We've totally lost sight of our mission. And so, we are lacking laborers to go out into the mission field right here and engage people with the gospel, the most amazing message on the planet. Some of you have lost jobs recently. Some of you have had your hours cut back Some of you have lost 401ks, you've lost equity in your homes, you've lost your homes. Bottom line is the economy is not good. We all know that. You don't have to watch news more than about 30 seconds to be bombarded and reminded with it, right? The economy stinks. But guess what? The harvest is the same. The harvest is still plentiful. Many of you are are looking for work. It's like, oh man, all the work is dried up, there's nothing out there. But you know what? The harvest... Is plentiful. And so maybe God has given you some free time to engage your mission more. Just trust Him. He's going to provide for your needs. He's promised to. He's promised to. And so rather than moaning and groaning and trying to figure it out in your own flesh, be engaged in your mission. You've got more time. Before, back like in 05, 06, when the economy was just blowing up, all I heard was, I'm so busy, I don't have any time, I'm just stressed out. And now you've got time. And now you aren't as stressed, some of you. And God's saying, I've got a lot of work for you to do. It may not pay a lot of money, but the dividends eternally are phenomenal. The mission lacks missionaries. The the harvest is great, but man, it's so sad and it breaks God's heart. The laborers are few. Nobody wants to go out and just simply bring it in. God is saying to you and to me, look, I stepped out of heaven. I took on human flesh. I lived and tabernacled among you for 33 years. I poured out my life for you. I gave my life on the cross. I took the wrath of God upon myself. And now all I'm asking you to do is go and tell people about it. The mission lacks missionaries. 
Well, a fourth truth about our mission is that the mission is accomplished through prayer. At the end of verse 2, he says, Pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And so you, you notice that the need is great. And you notice the workers are few. And so what do we do? We put on a seminar. This will get them. We're going to put on a seminar and we're going to train laborers to go out into the harvest. We're going to get it done. Okay, that didn't work. So we're going to write some books and we're going to get some people to go out and to be missionaries. And this book is going to change people's lives. And it sells a million copies, but still the laborers are few. Now look, I'm not opposed to seminars and conferences. I love going to them. I love going to church planting seminars and and seminars to train you to be on your mission in a more engaging fashion. I I love books. I'm constantly reading books, and I think you should be too. But neither one of those things is going to solve the problem. It's prayer. If you notice a lack of laborers in the mission field that is Prineville and Crook County, which there is a lack. If you notice a lack in our church, which there is a lack, Instead of beating people over the head or getting mad at people, I'm the only one that serves in this place. I'm the only one that does anything. Nobody else wants to do anything. I'm the only one. It's like Elijah, right? Remember Elijah? I'm the only one, Lord. And the Lord kind of called him on it. And that's how we get. He doesn't say complain or moan and groan and talk to everybody about how much you do. Make little kind of, you know, slight comments just to kind of let people know how involved you are and they're not. He doesn't say to do that. He says pray. Just pray. Just seek me. Pray that I will fire people up. It's not about me firing you up. It's not about me getting irritated at you and frustrated and and pounding my fist, demanding that you serve more. And I mean, believe me, I get frustrated sometimes. Sometimes it probably comes across. But that doesn't work. Because I don't want you responding to frustration. I don't want you responding to pleas and begging I want you responding to the Holy Spirit. I want you responding to Jesus and what he's done for you. Because then it doesn't matter what anybody says or how you get treated or if you get thanked. You know, if you're responding to begging, then you better get thanked and recognized and you better be appreciated. But when you respond to the work of Jesus in your life and to the Holy Spirit's leading, it's like, what are you thanking me for? So we need to pray because the mission is accomplished through prayer. A fifth truth about our mission is that it's difficult. I don't know if you know this or not, but the mission is difficult, and that's why the laborers are few. See, if it was easy, and we all got to just go out and like pack out stadiums and get up there and go, you need God, come forward, repent, we'll be down here to pray with you, and thousands went forward, we'd all be doing it. I mean, that's cool, but it's hard. It's about building relationships. It's about being hurt and yelled at. And as we're going to talk about being rejected, and it's about dealing with weird people that you don't like a whole lot. The the mission is difficult. Look what he says. Go your way. Behold, I send you out as lambs among wolves. That sounds really positive. If you know anything about lambs, and you know anything about wolves, you know this isn't a good combination. Lambs are like the most helpless animal on the earth. Sheep are right there with them, full-grown sheep. They're probably the most helpless animal, but you got a baby sheep. They don't have a violent bone in their body. All they know how to do is roll over and die. They don't have teeth. They don't run fast. They're not athletic. They're helpless. And that's the picture. And if you know anything about wolves, you know, according to scientists who are a lot smarter than me, apparently they're the only carnivorous 
predator on the planet that kills for fun. Even cougars don't do that. Wolves do. So you've got lambs that are helpless with wolves that like to kill for fun. There you go. Have fun with that. That's the picture that Jesus paints for us. And I don't think he's saying to us that you're going to go out and get eaten and left for dead. What he's saying is it's going to be hard. And sometimes you're going to feel like you've been eaten alive and spit out. The mission is difficult. If it was easy, everybody would be doing it. A sixth truth about our mission is that it demands contentment. Look at verses 4 through 8. Carry neither money bag, knapsack, nor sandals. He doesn't mean don't wear any shoes. What it means is don't carry extra shoes. Don't carry extra money. Don't carry a bunch of stuff. Greet no one along the road, which doesn't mean be rude. It means don't get distracted. They were all about hospitality and about greeting people, and there was all these rituals and things that you had to go through every time you encountered somebody. And so Jesus said, look, be focused. Remember at the... uh, in chapter 9, it, it tells us that Jesus had resolutely set his face toward Jerusalem, and there's nothing that was going to distract him from that. And that's what Jesus is saying. Just as I'm focused, I want you to be focused. Jesus was focused on the cross. Nothing could derail him from that. And that's what Jesus says to us. Be focused. Be content with what you have. Don't worry about all of life's encumbrances. Whatever house you enter... Say peace to this house. If there's a son of peace there, your peace will rest on it. If not, it will return to you. Remain in the same house, eating and drinking such things as they give for the laborers worthy of his wages. And Paul would go on to establish this as a doctrine in the church that those that are serving God are worthy to be compensated for that. Do not go from house to house. In other words, when people bring you in, because remember, there's no... Motel 6, no O'Connell Lodge, no Best Western. You, you stayed in people's homes. And so maybe somebody brings you in. You go to a city. You're going to go and, and, and preach the gospel. You're on your mission. Somebody brings you into their house. And it's kind of small. And you're back with the kids. And it stinks. And the dog jumps on the bed in the morning. And, and then the next day you meet somebody else. And they've got a bigger house. And you've got your own private room. And he says, look, just be content with what you have. Don't be looking for something else. Whatever city you enter... They receive you. Eat such things as are set before you. Don't be picky about your food and complaining. In other words, this whole section is about being content. Now, we're not staying with people and traveling around and, and depending on others to feed us. That, that, that doesn't really apply to us here this morning. But what does apply is being content with what you have. Because if you're always wanting the bigger house, the improved house, the remodeled house, if you're always wanting the bigger car, Maybe it's smaller cars now. You know, now if you drive a Hummer, you're kind of looked at like a gas-sucking, earth-ruining pagan, <laughs> right? A couple of years ago, I mean, it was cool to drive a Hummer and to live in like a 6,000-square-foot house. Now rich people are driving those little tiny cars that, you know, is like a death trap, and they're living in smaller houses because it's cool to do. It's cyclical, right? But be content with what you have because if you're not content... If you're not satisfied with whatever it is you have, you'll be off your mission. You'll be always wanting something else. And I remember when Andrea and I first got married, I told her, look, I'm going to be a pastor. We're going we're to plant churches. And I don't even want to own a house. And then a couple of years after we got married, we owned a house, smaller house. Then we got a bigger house. And now we've remodeled that house. And we've added on to that house. And we've got a jetted tub in that house. And we've got travertine floors in that house. And we've done all kinds of stuff to that house. And sometimes I think, how did I get distracted with some of these things? 
because now it's a little bigger house and now there's a lot more to clean and gosh, the yard is just a major project every year this time of the year. You know what I'm talking about? And how did I get distracted with all of that? And it, it, it happens by just kind of wanting more and, and, and not being satisfied with what you have. And God says, look, I'm sending you on mission. Don't let anything distract you from that. The mission demands contentment because if you're always looking for something else, then it's no wonder you, because you've got the payments. You've got to work 100 hours a week. The con- contentment will keep you on mission. A seventh truth about our mission is that it involves a simple message. Jesus said, look, you, you're, you're going to go there, you're going to heal the sick, and you're going to say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. That doesn't sound really complicated. That's like not even a full sentence. I mean, that, that's, that's simple. I can handle that. This isn't a huge book. This isn't a manual. This isn't a seminar that I've got to go to. This isn't a bunch of stuff I have to memorize. The kingdom of God has come near to you. In other words, God created a kingdom for you to live in, and He's the king of it. And He wants to rule your life, and He wants to grip your heart, and He wants to show you the purpose He has for your life. But you've chosen to live outside of His kingdom. And you're living out here in the sticks, and you're living like a pauper. You've got no food, and you're dying of thirst. You've got no leadership. You've got no direction in your life. You're empty. Your life is meaningless. But right over here is this kingdom with a king that loves you, that wants to provide for you, that wants to give you everything you've ever needed. The kingdom of God is near you. You don't even have to go very far. It's right there. That's the message. That's the message. It's not complicated. So often, I don't have a theology degree. I didn't go to seminary. I'm not very smart. I don't speak well. So I'm, I'm off the mission. Somebody else will do it because I don't understand. I don't engage people very well. They get mad and, and they cuss and, and it's, it's just not my calling. But it's a simple message. You ought to be able to, to wrap your mind around it. If you're saved and you know Jesus, then you can be on a mission. You can be on your mission. It's a simple message. We don't need to complicate it. It's it's unbelievable to me how we have made it more difficult for people to get saved today after the cross than it was for Abraham before the cross. Think about that. Abraham existed. He lived probably 4,000 years before Jesus. 3,000 years before Jesus. Before the law, before sacrifice, before any of the stuff. We think about the Old Testament. We think about Oh, man, it was real complicated. I mean, there was lots of rules and sacrifices, and it was a hassle. Just to get into the temple was a job. But the reality of it is, God told Abraham, look, Abraham, you believed in me, and I accounted it to you for righteousness. Hebrews chapter 11 lists all these guys that were saved before the cross by what? By their works? By sacrifice? David said, God doesn't even delight in sacrifice. All that stuff was pointing to Jesus. That's what God delights in. His son. And, and how you receive that is by faith. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. But now, post-cross, it's more complicated. How does that work? It doesn't make any sense at all. It's by faith. We just lay it out there and let people believe it or reject it. As we're going to see in verses 10 to 15. The eighth truth about our mission 
is that the mission will be rejected. It says, whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go out into its streets and say, look, the very dust of your city which clings to my shoes, I'm wiping it off because you are under the judgment of God and I want you to know that. The kingdom of God is near you. You have opportunity, but you've rejected it. You've rejected His Son and you're under the wrath of God. And it will be more tolerable in that day, in the day of judgment, is what he's speaking of, for Sodom. Remember Sodom and Gomorrah? It didn't end well for them. There was like a few people that made it out of there alive and even Lot's wife was turned into a pillar of salt. It wasn't a good day for Sodom and Gomorrah. And Jesus said, it will be better for them than it will be for those that reject me. Why? Because their destruction was just temporary. It was just a city. But your destruction will be eternal. And he goes on to say, woe to Chorazin and woe to Bethsaida, which are Jewish cities there in the Galilee region. Jesus says, if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon are Gentile cities that the prophets were continually judging, calling down the judgment of God on Tyre and Sidon. And the Jewish people felt like, we're better than Tyre and Sidon. We're better than the Gentiles. They're only good to stoke the fires of hell. We're God's people. And Jesus just hits them right between the eyes. He says, look, if the mighty works that were done here in your Jewish towns were done in Tyre and Sidon, the Gentile towns that you look down on, if they had the opportunity you had, they would repent. And so it's time for you to repent. It will be more tolerable for them, for Tyre and Sidon, those Gentiles that you think are the off-scouring of the earth, it will be more tolerable for them at the judgment than for you. This was heavy stuff for a Jewish person to hear. And all of this speaks of the fact that the mission will be, de- will be rejected. It will be rejected. Now know this, they're not rejecting you. Don't take it personally. They're rejecting God. And again, people get off mission because it's difficult and it's hard and they get rejected. And rather than just saying, look, I wiped the dust off my feet. You're under the judgment of God. My heart goes out to you. We get offended. We take it personally. We run home. We take our toys and we cry. And we don't want to do it anymore because it's hard. Because I was rejected. It's like the first time you go skiing. If you never go again, then you truly never will go again. You have to go a second time, even though you don't want to at all. Even though you're sore and you're busted up and you had zero fun. Apparently paintball is much the same way, but I am never doing it again. It's Chad's birthday last week. If you don't know Chad, our youth pastor, it was his birthday. And he invited me because I'm the out of shape, one-eyed pastor. So here's a good target, right? So I go with a lot of trepidation because there was a reason why when the recruiter called when I was in high school, I said, no thanks. I don't like getting shot at. No, thank you. I'll pass, right? Plus, I only had one eye, so he kept calling me over and over and over again. Finally, I said, look, dude, I only got one eye. You don't want me. Trust me, you don't want me. He never called again. But Chad did call. He invited me, so I went. I didn't really want to go. And sure enough, we're in this building. It's dark. There's stuff all over, and there's people that have played before, and I never have, and I'm crouched down. I think, well, I'm just going to hide in the corner, and when people come, I'll shoot them. No, didn't work that way because I only got one eye, so I can't see over here, so I get shot rapid fire like four times in the ribs, so I'm like, ah, you know, you go back into the little room, and everybody talks about it. Yeah, that was really cool, you know. 
Then like, okay, switch sides. So then you go to the other side, and I'm standing there. I'm like, okay, I'm going to be brave. I walk out. Boom, I get shot in the leg. I said, I'm out. I'm done. (laughs) This hurts. I don't like it. I haven't got to shoot anybody. I've only been shot. I'm done. So I went in my truck, got my cell phone, went on Facebook, listened to the radio, (laughs) waited for everybody to be done, and we went home. It was cool. But that's kind of like how we treat the mission. It's like, I'm out. I got shot. I'm hurt. I don't want to do this anymore. But Jesus said, it's going to be hard. Know that. And you're going to be rejected. Know that. The message will be rejected. If they rejected me, they're going to reject you. They rejected God in human flesh. What makes us think we will be received any better? If people's eyes have not been opened to the truth of the gospel, they're not going to like it. But we do need to talk about the judgment of God. We can't skip the judgment of God. And in the 21st century, we don't like to talk about the judgment of God. What we like to talk about is the lovey-dovey God, the grandpa God that brings you on his lap and tells you everything's going to be okay, gives you a lollipop and tells you to go home. That's the kind of God we like. Sugar daddy in the sky, gives you everything you want. Genie in a bottle, rub him a few times, he'll pop out, he'll give you all your wishes. But the God of the Bible, you guys, is a generous, loving God. In fact, he's a reckless, spendthrift God who gave everything for you. But he's also a God of judgment. He's a God of wrath. He's a God of holiness. And we can't understand that because in our minds, you're either a nice guy who's always saying nice things or you're a jerk. And how's God both? Well, he's not a jerk. He's perfectly holy. And he cannot allow sin to go unchecked. And so we have to talk about the judgment of God even though in our postmodern culture and society people don't like that people don't like absolute truths people don't like the fact that they're accountable for their behavior but we have to talk about it and we have to be strong on it and that's what jesus tells us to do because the the mission will be rejected quickly verse 16 we also see the mission is a great responsibility he who hears you as they're hearing you preach the gospel they're hearing me have you thought about that As you are speaking the word of God, you are speaking for God. This is his message. And he who rejects you, well, guess what? They're rejecting me. And he who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. All of this to say it's a great responsibility because the message that you've been given is not your message. It's his message. You just get to pass it on. You're the messenger. So in a sense, you can just be like, don't shoot the messenger, right? You don't get mad at your mailman because he brings you bills. It's not his fault. It's not his fault that you ran the credit card up, right? I mean, you want to blame it on somebody, but it's not the mailman's fault. He's just the messenger. Look, we're messengers. We have a huge responsibility, just like the mailman. Like if he had that bill and he thought, ooh, that's a credit card bill. I'm going to throw that out. They don't need that. That would be kind of catastrophic, right? Our economy would be a lot worse off than it is now if mailmen did that. It's a huge responsibility that we have to simply preach the message. The mission can also create pride. They come back, they're all stoked because the demons were subject to them. They're like, oh man, you should have seen we were casting demons out. We were doing all kinds of stuff. They were just totally enamored with their gifts. And Jesus said, look, don't be impressed with that. I saw Satan fall like lightning. It's no big deal. The power you have, the gifts you have are all from me. The mission can create pride though. When you start being used by the Lord and things are happening, your ministry is growing, you're leading people to Jesus, you're praying for people, people start telling you that you're making a difference in their life, 
can start to get prideful. You can start to think, yeah, maybe my name ought to be in the bulletin a little bit more often. The, the mission can create pride. That's, that's a 10th truth about our mission. We have to break that. We have to be humbled. We have to know that it's about Jesus. It's not about us. An 11th truth in closing about our mission is that the mission is about what Jesus has done for us, not what we do for Him. He says, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. See, when you're on mission and you're being used by God, you can begin to elevate the mission above the God of the mission. You can begin to elevate ministry above Jesus. And and that is really sad. And, And that's where church becomes your entire life and you're defined by church and every day is at church and every night and the kids are getting dragged every conceivable thing and they hate church. It shouldn't be that way because it's not about what you're doing for God. It's about what He did for you. That's the mission. And see, when you understand that, listen, when you understand that it's about what He's done for you, not about what you can go do for Him, then it radically changes how you view the mission. Because some of you might be thinking, well, man, I'm really busy, Ryan. I'm not unemployed. In fact, I'm just swamped. Or, Ryan, I've got kids at home. i got dinners to cook. i got clothes to wash. I've got lawns to mow. i got a lot going on. I don't have time for all this stuff you're talking about. I can barely keep my life together. But the thing is, is that God isn't asking you to go become a missionary in Africa to give up everything you're doing, to neglect your children. God's not asking you to devote your life to full-time ministry down at the church to the neglect of everything else. What God is saying to you is, what are you doing? Remember Moses when when he wanted to part the Red Sea? And he said, how am I going to do this? And God said, what's in your hand? A rod. Okay, we'll use that. God wants to use whatever's in your hand. Whatever you're setting your hand to. Whatever your life is about. So tomorrow when you get up in the morning, you're on a mission. When you go to work, or when you make your kids breakfast, or when you're washing the clothes, or when you're running errands around town, or when you're on a business trip, or you're on the phone making a sales call, you're on mission. And so it permeates everything you do. It colors everything. All of your life's activities, it's about mission. So when you're mowing your lawn, and it's like, oh, I hate mowing my lawn, i got to get out of here and do something funner. And then the neighbor's coming over and you see him walk and you're like, oh, dear God, not this guy again. And you ignore him, you know, a couple more passes along the side of the house hoping that he disappears and you pop out from the side. Oh, he's still here. Gosh, doesn't he get a clue? Rather than that, rather than having that attitude, you stop the mower. Hey, what's going on? How are you doing? Oh, I saw you got a new lawnmower. I wanted to come over. I really like lawnmowers. I took small engine repair in high school, you know. Oh, really cool. Yeah, that's great. But you, you begin to just talk with the guy and just be Jesus to the guy. And you stop what you're doing because the, mowing the lawn was just part of your mission. And God used that to bring the nerd that likes to work on lawnmowers over to your house. So what a great opportunity. And it's about death to self, right? So the mission is just about what Jesus has done for you. Not what you can go do for him. You don't have to go create it. What are you doing? What are you doing right now? That's your mission. See it as such. Allow it to be about Jesus. Whatever it is you're doing, don't lose sight of the fact that you're sent by God, that he's a missionary God, and he sent you to be on mission with him. Let's stand and pray together.
Father, we thank you for our time in your word, Lord. What a, what a rich passage, Lord. Such amazing truths for us to grasp a hold of and to understand. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't lose sight of our mission, Lord. That we wouldn't be derailed or taken off course. That, God, we would stay focused. And that, Lord, whatever it is that we're doing, that we would see it as part of our mission. God, use us for your glory for your fame. God, may we be able to reach this community. God, may we be able to engage this community with the gospel. God, the harvest is great. The laborers are few. God, we want to be your laborers, Lord. Here we are. Send us. Lord, we're we're not mighty. We're not intelligent. Lord, we don't have a lot of resources. We don't have anything to offer you. God, but we give you ourselves. Lord, use us, we pray, in Jesus' name. You've been listening to Pastor Ryan Couch of Calvary Chapel, Crook County. For more information, you can write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon, 97754. Thanks for listening, and God bless.